Amen. Well, I was thinking about today and a story to share today, and it dawned upon me that a year ago to this very day, there was a group of us within this church that headed out into Poudre Canyon specifically to help out with fire relief. And just want to know, is there anybody, I, I know Preston that you were there. I'm trying to think anybody else that was with us on that team. I know Lena was, was there with us. Well, last year we got to join in with Mennonite Disaster Services and we got to specifically help out with fire relief in Poudre Canyon area. And I was thinking about this specifically because it's a year till this day that we started doing that work there. But I also Think, started thinking about it because I remembered what it was like to show up to one of the sites that we were asked to clean up. And I wish I had a picture for you guys. For whatever reason, it wasn't transferring um, correctly onto our software that we use. But if I could describe this site to you, it was a total mess. You see, they split up different groups of us to help out in different areas. Some of us were helping out with erosion relief. Some of us were helping out just clear out areas. And I was in that group of people that was told to help clear out an area. So we showed up at the site and there was nothing but all of this piled up, charred up pieces of rafters and other items and and power equipment. And there was thousands of pounds worth of material that just got burned down from a barn that caught on fire in that area. And I remember looking at all of that and just thinking, how in How on earth are we going to clear this up in one day? So we begin working, and we're working as hard as we can to clear it up. But there's so many items still left that we just couldn't lift up. It was just far too heavy. Then all of a sudden, this beautiful, big old, yellow excavator shows up. And sure enough, it puts a smile on all of our faces because that excavator just starts clawing at all of the debris and all of the heavy machinery that we just couldn't lift and starts piling it up into the dumpster. And I couldn't help but think in that moment how much the right tool for the job makes a difference and how having the right power equipment in that case makes all the difference. And we were able to clear up that whole lot in the afternoon. Although I was the one that was sent to empty out that dumpster and uh, empty it into another larger dumpster where I think Preston and his team was supposed to meet us there. And uh, they showed up about five minutes before I finished (laughs) and still made it for the photo op, of course. Uh, So, no, I just joke about that. But what a great day it was to be able to do those things and help out those people. Well, today, as we look at Ephesians chapter 6, I'm still on theme with thinking about how important it is to have the right kind of... Of equipment. And as I said a moment ago, I strategically stopped at this last piece of God's armor. And specifically because I think this last piece of God's armor really stands apart from the rest. And I think that it would be it was important for us to take the entirety of today's message in order to discuss that piece, in order for us to really get a deepened understanding of why this is so important. So again, I invite 
invite you guys to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to be reading verses 17 through 19 today. So as a way of reminder, Paul is writing this letter to either the Ephesians or the Laodiceans. And he's writing it sometime in, or in the 60s AD. And most importantly, Paul is in the final chapters of his life. So we want to pay close attention to what he has to say to us. And he says in verse 17, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God. Thank you. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. So if you remember, there were six pieces of the armor of God, and I'll put those pieces on the screen for you. There was the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and now last but not least, what's the last and final piece? The sword of the Spirit. In many ways, this stands apart from the other items, which again is why I decided to separate it for its own message today. And why do you think this item in particular stands apart from all the others? Well, for one, it is the only item in which you could truly do battle, right? If you think about it, all the other items, for the most part, are what? Defensive, protective items. Items that are used in order to shield yourself or protect yourself in the midst of a battle. But this last item, the sword of the spirit, is truly the only item in which you can not only just stand and defend yourself, but do what? Attack. So what is the sword of the spirit? If you didn't know, what Paul most likely had in mind would most likely have been a Roman gladius. And I'll put that on the screen for you. This is a picture of a Roman gladius. Now, this is a very special sword. If you didn't know, even though it's called a Roman gladius, it actually did not originate from Rome. So while the Romans were fighting in Carthage, there was specifically a group of Iberians who are, are, are kind of modern day Spaniards and they were using what is called a gladius and this sword had devastating uh, uh, effect as they were being fought with the Roman soldiers there and they were specifically devastating because these swords are shorter in length so because of their shorter length and their V-shaped design this sword was so devastating because while most people held two-handed swords or long swords, this gladius was able to just be swifter, swifter as a weapon and was able to thrust, cut, and slice at a higher speed. So the Romans would eventually adopt this sword, and the way that they would use it within a military battle is they would 
hold the Roman shield, which looked like a door, and they would draw the sword with their right hand. And even if you were a left-handed soldier, every single Roman soldier was trained to be able to draw that sword with their right hand so that they would not harm the Roman that was next to them. And then as they would fight, they would fight with a single unit with these door-shaped shields in hand, the scutums in hand, in order to advance against the enemy. And because these swords were so much shorter, they would go and then they would thrust with the sword using the shield in in order to protect the neighbor next to them while still trying to advance on the enemy. And these swords grew in such popularity in the Roman army as well as in the gladiatorial games that gladiators even were given their name off of the gladius. So this most likely, this weapon is most likely the weapon that Paul had in mind. This special strategic weapon that was so good at being able to take out the enemy. And for that reason, I want to now think about why it is that Paul specifically centers his message around this item called the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. Now, the sword of the spirit comes from a Greek word, which is in very much relation to what Roger talked about last week, what Dr. Olson talked about last week, when he specifically talked about this word called pneuma. And this breath, this breath of the spirit, specifically comes down to the word of God, which is really going to be the big idea for today, that God's word is our weapon, that God's word is our weapon. And I think this is what Paul wants us to be able to understand when it relates to the armor of God, that God's word is our weapon weapon. And this is really important, church, and I don't want us to miss out on what I believe God wants us to learn today. Because you see, if we are going to be able to fight against the enemy, if we're to fight against the kingdom of darkness, then we need to understand for ourselves what equipment is needed. And here, Paul is specifically saying to us that we need a sword, and that sword is the Word of God. But what really is the Word of God? I mean, think about that. If I were to ask you what the Word of God is, most of you could probably hold up your Bibles and say, well, this is the Word of God. And that's 100% true. But if we look at scripture and try to understand what the Bible says the word of God is, it is 100% this book. But more specifically, we see other illustrations of what the word of God is within scripture. For instance, John 1 talks about what? Jesus as the word of God. And then later on in scripture, we hear so much about what the word of God is. And I think the word of God specifically dwindles down to or boils down to understanding truth, understanding truth. 
And I think this is such an important point to make because in Hosea 4, 6, what does God's word say there? And I'm going to read out of the ESV for this particular verse. And it says this, my people are destroyed for a lack of what? knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I will forget your children. So make no mistake, Paul wants us to understand God's truth as our ultimate weapon in life. But as you may know, and if you don't, you'll hopefully learn by the end of today, that truth is something that is under attack. And look, I don't mean to say that as hyperbolic. I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying that truth is under attack. If you didn't know, there's a whole entire school of thought that comes out of postmodernism on this idea of relativism. Maybe you've heard people say that truth is relative right? Whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. And relativism, if we're to define it, is is just that, that truth's morals, knowledge is relative to one's culture or personal belief. But as Christians, we can't accept that. Why? Because if God's word offers us anything, it offers us an unchanging truth. We oftentimes call this what? Absolute truth. Now, I want to give you an example of relativism because I want to equip you guys. You see, Paul, writing this letter, wanted to equip the Laodiceans to be able to fight the enemy. And I think Sunday services, in many ways, are meant to do just that, to equip us for Christian living. Amen? So here is an example of a relativistic statement. So go ahead and put it on the screen. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Raise your hand in the air if you've heard somebody say this before. Okay, so most of, okay, everybody's hands for the most part went up. There is no such thing as absolute truth. Now what's wrong with that statement? Exactly, Barb nailed it on the head. This is an absolute truth statement. So people that try to say there is no such thing as absolute truth, well, they're at least making one absolute truth statement. And maybe that was a little complicated for you to understand, so let me try to simplify that a little bit more. If there is no such thing as truth, then you don't have the right to even make a statement like that. Because what that is, is a truth statement. G.K. Chesterton would say that this is a statement that commits suicide on itself. It cuts the very ground or it cuts the legs on which it stands on. And in very many ways, morality like art, art like morality as G.K. Chesterton would say, consists of drawing the lines somewhere. Drawing the lines somewhere. And I think that is what truth provides us. It provides us a framework to be able to understand the world around us. So when we see something, for instance, that tries to convince us of something other than what the gospel teaches us, or other than what God's word teaches us, then how should we look at that? Well, we should look at that as something trying to go against truth. 
So for example, if I were to be told that killing somebody, murdering somebody is okay, what would I say to that individual based off of what I know from Scripture? That murder is wrong. That God does not want us to take the lives of other people because through doing that, we are doing what? We're marring the image of God. And now I understand that there is a difference between defense and murder, a premeditative thought of harm against an individual, and I don't want to get fully into the weeds of that kind of conversation, but at the very least an understanding that God's word teaches us what? Through anger at the very least to not harm other people to be the kinds of people where we can turn our other cheek. Or, as we would learn in the book of Romans, that we would not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with what? With good. And I'll just read that passage, in fact, out of the book of Romans, because I think it says it so well. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take what? Revenge. Now, just stopping there, that is a radical thought in our day and age, right? I mean, I think there's a whole entire, isn't there a whole entire series called Revenge? Uh, I'm sure you could probably watch it on Netflix or another streaming service. I've never seen it, but sometimes these titles shock me. And in reality, this concept of do not take revenge is so different from the world that we see today, is it not? The way that we see the world operate today is that you do what? You repay evil for evil. In fact, we oftentimes admire people within our uh, culture that have that kind of personality. That if you want to dish stuff at me, don't worry, I'll give it just as hard back to you. And we live with that kind of perspective oftentimes. If at least we don't have it, we know of somebody that has it. Maybe somebody within our workplace or our families or just out on the streets. We see this all the time. But what is Paul trying to encourage us to realize? That we need to be people of his word because through doing that, when we look at the world around us, we can respond appropriately. Because you know why? Because sin corrupts us. You see, if we give into our sins in life, if we give into the things that the Lord has tried to save us, not just from, but towards, right, for, then what ends up happening to our lives is we end up living lesser versions of what God has called us to. You see, I want us to be able to understand this so well because part of being able to fight is being able to understand what you're fighting for and what you're fighting against. Amen? And this is so important because as Timothy reminds us in 2 Timothy 4.3, which I'll put in the screen, and God bless you, Adam, I know I'm jumpy, is it says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves 
teachers to suit their own passions. Now, what is Paul saying there? He's saying that there will be a time, and I think we are experiencing this even today, where people will find teachers, will find people to just confirm for themselves the things that they want to hear. Not the things that maybe God wants to tell them, but the things that they want to hear. So they just find people to give them confirmation in their sin. And it says, it continues in verse 4, And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off where? Into myths. Into myths. And we're not just seeing that. In the world, I think that we're seeing that within the church. And the sad thing is, is there was a study that actually just came out that confirms some of this. If you guys know who the Barna Group is, the Barna Group is uh, a leading researchers uh, within Christian spirituality and Christian ministry. And there's a partner within the Barna Group that comes out of uh, Arizona Christian University called the Cultural Research Center of Arizona. And I'm just going to put some of the statistics on the screen because I think it. It shows for us today some of the struggles that we're facing. And it's not just within the world. Make no mistake, it is what, with 100% within the church. But if you didn't know this, of pastors, the, uh, according to this research, which was very exhaustive, 30% of pastors possess a biblical worldview. That should really disturb you, church. That should really concern you. Because what that means is, is that only 37%, one out of every three pastors, hold an actual worldview within the Bible. Meaning the way that they define truth, morality, what it means to live as people of God, only 37% of them are holding to what a true biblical worldview would look like. And the rest of them, two-thirds of them, are holding worldviews that are what? Syncristic, which, which means, syncretism means that a, belie- a blended belief of different worldviews. Maybe you take a little bit of what atheism has to teach. Maybe you take a little bit of what Buddhism has to teach, or Hinduism, or secularism, and you add that into a packaged syncristic form of what Christianity is. And so often that is what we're seeing within churches, at least within the United States. Here's what's even a sadder number for me, is that only 12% of children and youth pastors hold a biblical worldview. So basically one out of every 10 people that are ministering to our children, most commonly within churches, are holding what? An actual biblical worldview. Well, if you didn't know this, according to some psychologists out there, they would say that most children have their worldview uh, set for them by the age of 13, and that they use the remaining uh, teen years and 20 years really solidifying that worldview or slightly editing it. But for the most part, most children have their framework for how they see and interpret the world by the age of 13. 
So church, if you are letting your kids go into places where they're being taught, at least maybe even within the church, Make no mistake that there are children's pastors out there and there are youth pastors out there that unfortunately are not even offering any sort of biblical understanding of what a child should be able to have. And if anything, it reinforces the important point that we as parents need to take stewardship over our children's well-being. And we need to, in very many ways, be the ones that safeguard their minds and allow them to truly understand what the Lord has to tell us biblically. Now, I know this might be hard to hear, especially the fact that 13% of teaching pastors possess a biblical worldview, but it's just the world that we live in. And God, for the most part, has warned us of this for many, many years throughout Scripture, talking about that there there will one day be a day where people will mistake darkness for light and light for darkness. You know, in 2016, I was working for a parachurch ministry out of Arvada, And they had flew me out to Ohio in order to attend a conference there. It was in Cincinnati, and it was a global conference. There was thousands of people in attendance, and it was really a great time. It was an opportunity for me to be able to rub shoulders with people and really just learn some things that were going on culturally within uh, the United States and Christianity. But I'll never forget, out of all the workshops I attended, I'll never forget what happened to me on my flight back. And on my flight back from Cincinnati, Ohio to Denver, there was a gentleman that was sitting next to me. And I only mention this story because I think it helps us understand a little bit better how to use the sword of the Spirit. And as I was talking to this gentleman, it became very obvious that him and I had a very different worldview on life. He was talking to me about his relationship with his boyfriend, meaning that he was a homosexual, and we were discussing this together. And I think for many of us, when we think of the sword of the spirit and how to fight the enemy, I think many of us wrongly think that what that means is is to just take this Bible and beat it on somebody's head. And sadly, I think that has been the strategy for some people, where they just take the Bible, if they believe somebody disagrees against them, they just whack them with it. And they use this sword of the spirit a little too literally. (laughs) And what ends up happening is what? You end up doing some damage to people. You end up, if anything, furthering them away from reaching where you want to reach. And in some ways, that is your own fault. Because you have wrongly used the word of God. Now, the word of God is a weapon, But it's not a weapon meant to tear down people so that they could stay down in the ground, right? It's a weapon that's meant to hopefully fight the enemy and change people's perspective to ultimately the gospel of grace. Because that is what the good news is about. It's about the fact that we can find forgiveness. It's not just that we are wretched sinners, 
Yes, it's true, sometimes you need to know that you're lost in order to, to figure out that you need to be found. Or that you need to know that you're a sinner so that you can understand what forgiveness is like. That is true. But as I was talking to this gentleman who uh, had a very different ideology than me, and he was talking about his male partner, and obviously I don't agree with that lifestyle. I don't believe, not just because I, I, I want to be dogged on that kind of perspective, I just don't believe that that is God's design for marriage and for families. So because of that, I don't think that out of that lifestyle that we can honor God and the human flourishing of humanity. But in that conversation, instead of just opening up my Bible to a chapter in Leviticus and starting to read about how wrong his life is, I decided I was going to do my best to figure out one way I can positively impact him through truth. So he was talking to me about his relationship, and he was sharing with me how much he struggles in being able to have good communication. So I said, boom, I could, I could, I could talk about that, and we could figure out how to talk about communication. So he talked to me about how often he would get angry, and he knew by this point that I was a Christian. So I told, told him, I said, well, do you know that in the Bible, it calls us to be quick to listen? Scripture even says it like this. It says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. So maybe within your relationships in your life, and not just this one, but maybe within all your relationships in life, it would serve you better to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And it was amazing, because right there he said, man, I've never thought about that. I usually am thinking about the next thing that I want to say. And right there, I felt like that was a wonderful opportunity to be able to share truth in somebody's life. I didn't just affirm him in everything that he was doing. I didn't just say, hey, it's okay, buddy. But I thought about one way to be able to speak truth in his life. And who knows, maybe, maybe through having listening ears, he might just do what? Listen to some other people. And that's the thing, if, if, if you speak the word of God with love into other people's lives, whether you realize it or not, you could be doing what? You could be tilling the soil, you could be removing the weeds, or if there's a road there, you could be clearing the path in order for maybe you or maybe somebody else to do what? To eventually bring the gospel. And that is oftentimes how I think God is calling us to fight, to be the kinds of people that could speak truth into this world. When Jesus was being tempted, he was being tempted through Satan, and Satan was even doing what? He was quoting scriptures to Jesus. And Jesus was, how did he fight back to Satan? He fought back by quoting scriptures back to Satan. But you see, Satan was quoting the scriptures out of context, and Jesus was quoting the scriptures of context. And this ultimately leads to the point that I'm making and continuing to make, that God's word is our weapon. That God's word is our weapon. Church, you need to know for yourself God's word. You need to know it well. Make no mistake, it is not just my job in this church to know God's word. 
It is just as much your job. And the reason why is because if you plan to live a God-honoring life, well, you need to understand what a God-honoring life looks like. And the only way that I know how you can understand for yourself what a God-honoring life looks like is by reading his word. A 35-minute sermon from Pastor Kevin once a week is just not enough. And I would even venture to say, although you should turn into our podcast, if you don't listen to our podcast, you can listen to all my sermons over and over again through the weeks that you are uh, here. But, and I would venture to, to even say in stretch that yes, it is good to take time to read devotionals. One of my favorite devotionals is from Charles Stanley. I, I think he does great devotionals. And my wife and I, we often read it together on a daily basis. But if you're just reading one line of text, then I would say you need to try to stretch yourself to really know his word. Because if you don't know his word, then scripture repeatedly warns us that what, end, what could end up happening to us is, is that we can be the kinds of people that instead of standing on God's truth, we replace God's truth for myths, for lies, for things that are not fully honoring to him. And tell you what, church, I wanna change some of those statistics I want to be a part of increasing within at least the United States the church's ability to have a biblical worldview, amen? And the only way I know how to do that is to continue to preach truth. And I think if we're to change the areas, whether it be within our own family or our city or our state or our country to be able to understand better the, the, the love of God and his truth, then we need to know his truth. We can't be advocates for something that we don't know, right? It's like if you're a waiter. I remember uh, years ago in college, I was a waiter at Applebee's. And I remember the most awkward situations would happen to me where they would say something like this. Well, is that good? You know, I, I, and I would go, well, I've never ate it before. And it was especially awkward when I was 18 and if you didn't know, as an 18-year-old, you could serve alcohol. But, I, so, but I, I was never old enough to drink, but yet I'd have to serve alcohol. And they would ask me, so what do you think about that drink? And I would say, well, I'm only 18. I don't know. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. You go to a restaurant, you ask a waiter, is, is that good? Is that good? And then you kind of wonder, like, what, have you ever ate here? <laughs> it's hard to sell something, Right? if you've never experienced it and if you don't know it for yourself. And I think if, the, if you are to truly fight the enemy and be someone that not only stands their own ground, but is like a Roman soldier able to advance with his battalion and moving forward and attacking the enemy, then you need to do what? You need to know his word. And make no mistake, I know the audience that I'm preaching to. And I know that as Mennonites, we are pacifistic people. But do not mistake these two words, being passive and being pacifistic, or pacifism and passiveness. Do not mistake those two words. Because while we might not be people of violence, while we might be people that try to encourage other ways of finding peace, 
that doesn't mean that God calls us to sit on our hands. There's still a battle to be fought, and there's a victory to be gained through living out our faith for the word of God. Thank you. Paul finishes out this section in Ephesians 6.18, and I'll read it to you. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So what is he trying to tell us there? That we do not fight alone, that we fight as a group, and that's why we pray for one another, and that we need to be people of prayer. In verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. And while I think in very many ways uh, that this seems separated from the armor of God, I think in very many ways Paul is trying to lump this in all together because ultimately prayer fuels it all. Prayer is the energy, it's the fuel through which we live out our faith, amen? We need to be people that are connected to God and not just readers of his word, but conversationally talking to God about our lives. And when it says to pray without ceasing, to, to never stop in our prayers, what scripture is telling us is, is that we need to be in constant connection with God. It's not to close our eyes and drive <laughs> and to constantly be praying. You know, I remember one time when, you know, I, I, took, I took everything so literally when I first became a Christian, and I literally remember one time I said, okay, I'm going to pray without ceasing today. So I closed my eyes while I was in high school, and then boom, I just ran into a locker <laughs> while I was praying. It's not that kind of prayer. It's more of a connection. You know, most of us carry cell phones with us. And we do that, why? Because we want to stay connected to the people that love us. And we want to, the, the people that love us to stay connected to us. So that hopefully when you dial that number, although what is it with wives and not picking up their phones? I just don't understand that. It's like every time I try to get a hold of my wife, I can never get her to pick up the phone. But it's that same thought, right? That we need to stay connected to God. And we do that through prayer and through living in his word. You know, each time I call Beth, and for those that, that don't know who Beth is, she's a lovely woman at our church. Every time I call her on the phone, she always tells me, I've been praying for you, and I've been praying for your family. And I think that is the heart that God wants us to have as we fight this fight, a place where we know that our church family prays for us and prays for others. And Make no mistake, Yoders, we were praying for you, and I know you know that, but I just need to affirm that in you, that we love you guys, and we pray for you guys when you go through hardship, and that's true of anybody else in this place. Amen. I want to end our time with this poem that I think in very many ways captures the heart of prayer and how we are to use prayer as truly a part of our fight here on earth, and it's from J.A. Wallace. Listen to these words. Read the, you don't have to read them aloud, but, but read them as I read them aloud to you. There is an eye that never sleeps beneath the wing of the night, 
There is an ear that never shuts when sink the beams of light. There is an arm that never tires when human strength gives way. There is a love that never fails when earthly loves decay. That eye is fixed on seraph throngs. That arm upholds the sky. That ear is filled with angels' songs. That love is throned on high. But there is a power which man can wield when mortal aid is vain. That eye, that arm, that love to reach, that listening ear to gain. That power is prayer which soars on high through Jesus to the throne and moves the hand which moves the world to bring salvation down. Well, let's pray, church, to the hand which moves the world. Father, I thank you that you don't leave us unequipped that you give us tools in order to stand our ground. And not just stand our ground, but to fight in advancement of your kingdom. Father, I pray that your word, which represents the, the, the sword of the spirit, Father, that we would truly hold that word in our armor. That your word would truly be a lamp unto our feet. I pray, Father, that this week, that if anybody here has felt convicted, that if anybody here has said for themselves, you know what, I don't know God's word as much as I should. Lord, I pray that they would not take that as a conviction that makes them feel shame, the kind of shame that leads to inaction, But I pray, Father, that they would use that conviction not to feel shameful, but rather to feel motivated, motivated to change that in their lives today. Father, I know that you desire no harm in our lives, that you desire to only do good, to bring peace into our hearts. So I just pray, Father, that you would encourage each of us to visit with you to talk to you more and to learn more about your character and the kind of truths that you want us to know for ourselves as well as speak into the world to others. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.